Morning, Mercy House. Good morning. Pastor Tommy, I'm really glad to be here this morning getting to walk with you through God's Word. Um, this morning we're in chapter 9 of Nehemiah, um, as you just heard, which it flows very quickly from chapter 8. Uh, and so if you weren't with us last week, um, as we looked at chapter 8, here are some of the things that you need to know so that chapter 9 makes a little bit of sense uh, for you. Chapter 8 is what is essentially the climax of the entire book of Nehemiah. It, it's this incredible moment uh, of massive spiritual revival for the entire nation of Israel. If you back up a little bit, you see in chapter 6 that you have the completion of the wall, which is what they're working on from the very beginning of the book, but that's not really the pinnacle of the book. You'd think that it would be because it's this huge monumental task that they're accomplishing, but it's just not. And then you go into chapter 7, which is this really long census of all the people of Israel, uh, and that's also not the climax. What we've been saying from the very beginning of this book is how the physical rebuilding of Israel is really important, but it is just a shadow of a more substantial and important work, that of spiritually rebuilding the people of Israel. And you see this in the structure of the book. The, the physical rebuilding of the walls was significant for sure. It took up the entire first half of the book. And people answered the call to physically return and to physically rebuild the walls as a way to physically return to God. But after the building is complete, chapter 8 shows us that, people's, uh, that, that the people are spiritually returning to God. And that is far more significant than just the physical return. And that's the height of the book. In chapter 8, it's this glorious, awesome moment that Jimmy walked us through last week. Um, and I encourage you to take a listen to that if you haven't already. But here's the reality. Being physically present doesn't automatically equate to spiritual fruit. And if we can be completely honest, just because you all are physically here during this time, it does not mean that you will automatically spiritually benefit from this time. It's very possible for you to sit there, hear this, and then for you to leave, and this was not substantial or fruitful or anything for you. The reason is because church is not an algorithm where if you gather some people together, you read some verses and sing some songs, there's some sort of like incantation that happens, and then spiritual revival just automatically happens in your heart. Now, those are very necessary ingredients for spiritual renewal and revival, which is why we always read the Word, which is why we gather, which is why we sing songs of worship. Um, and, and showing up here is also really critical. So I do want to encourage you for making it out here this morning. But what Nehemiah shows us is that the spiritual renewal and the spiritual revival of, of God's people on a community level, but also in the, in the personal lives um, of God's people, it's a product of the supernatural work of God through his word. And so Nehemiah chapter 8 is a picture of what we hope for and pray will happen each and every Sunday morning. It's a model for corporate worship uh, that we follow, which includes the exalting of God's word as we all gather and listen to it together. As we take time to explain it so that everyone can understand God's word and where God's spirit does the supernatural work of moving the word of God from our ears and through our heads and down into our hearts. And when that happens, when the beautiful truths of God's word, his, his incredible mercy, his immeasurable grace, his unfathomable love for us, just to name a few, when those are read in God's word, when they're heard in our ears, when they're understood in our brains, and then they pierce into the depths of our hearts, then we respond in worship. We rejoice, we praise 
God singing and making a joyful noise. And that's what you see happening in chapter 8. As the people of God respond to God's word with wholehearted celebration. And we're not just talking about a little afternoon celebration. We're, we're, we're seeing in that first gathering of God's people in the newly rebuilt Jerusalem, it leads them into a whole festival of partying. And all of that stems from the hearing of God's word being taught, being understood at the gathering. But Israel had to be directed to celebrate because their first reaction to God's word as they gathered together was not to celebrate and rejoice. Look again uh, at chapter 8, verse 9. This is just a page back in your Bible, or, uh, maybe a couple pages back. Verse 9 says, And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. So their natural response was not to celebrate, but actually to weep. Now, this morning, we're going to see why that is in chapter 9, why they wept. But Nehemiah and the leaders had to direct, redirect, had to shepherd their flock actually to celebrate when their natural inclination was to weep. Why? This is a really important question that we need to answer before we actually get into chapter 9. So bear with me. Chapter 8 of Nehemiah reads very similar to the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. So in Luke 15, if you remember, the story tells us about a son who demands his inheritance from his father. Then he goes and he squanders it all in reckless living. And then having a moment of sobriety as he's eating pig slop and realizing what he's done, he decides to come home. And there's an almost identical redirection of emotion. The, the son comes home, he's aware of how foolish he's been, how much hurt and pain he's caused, how sinful he's been. And he's coming with a spirit of sorrow and mourning over his behavior, and he's planning on just working as a servant for the father. But upon seeing his son returning, the father runs out to him, he grabs his son, he holds him and hugs him, he takes a robe and puts it on his son, he takes a ring and puts it on his son's finger, effectively restoring him back to the family that he just ran out on. Then what does he do after that? You remember, he orders that the fattened calf be slaughtered so that they can have a feast and to celebrate. Why? Because God's softness and excitement toward a wayward child who returns home, God's joy over a sinner who repents and returns back to God is what God wants us to know is that the absolute forefront of his mind. God does not desire that we grovel. He, he doesn't force us to take a time out. He doesn't say to us, now I want you to go to your room and I want you to think about what you've done. That's not God. When we repent, when we confess our sin, his delight is in our return. And his priority is to enjoy the fellowship that he has with us, that, that's been restored when we return to him. Now, it doesn't mean that there hasn't been hurt and that there aren't consequences to our actions. The prodigal son did massive damage to the family. He did emotional damage. He did financial damage to the family. But the father prioritizes his fellowship that's been restored. He said, look, we're going to deal with this mess. We're going to deal with this tomorrow. And we're going to do that together, son. But right now, you see this in Luke chapter 15, verse 23, second half of it. It says, let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. 
he was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. You see the parallels there? God's word should lead us to rejoicing in who God is, looking first at God and how incredible he is and rejoicing in our relationship that we have with him. But there will come a time when reflecting on God's goodness will reveal our own brokenness. And it will be time to acknowledge it before the Lord and before our family. That's what confession is as a Christian. Chapter 9 is like the morning after the prodigal son's party. What I would imagine is the son is sitting down at the breakfast table with his father, and he kind of pushes aside some of the cake and the food that's on the table, and he does tell the father what he had planned to tell the father during his journey home. And you hear this earlier in the parable in, in verse 18, where he says, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and, and, and I have sinned against heaven and before there's a moment for that to be communicated to the Father. Now, before we dive into the text, let's just pray before we go to verse 1. So pray with me now. God, you are our Father in heaven. You are holy, and there is none like you. And Father, I pray that this time would be led and empowered by your Holy Spirit, God. Help us to understand your word. Help us to see your goodness. Help us to delight in your steadfast love toward us. And help us to have soft hearts. God, which can acknowledge our sinfulness toward you and toward others. God, only you can do this. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in verse 1, I encourage you to have this open as we look at it together. Now, on the 24th day of the month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. If you recall back to the beginning of chapter 8, when they gathered together for that first church service in the rebuilt Jerusalem, and they heard God's law, which is God's word, um, when it was being read and taught, it was the first day of the seventh month. And this is the 24th day of that same month. So this is 23 days later. 23 days of reading God's word regularly, of celebrating, of rejoicing, of eating and drinking. Honestly, Israel had not partied like this as a community for over 100 years since before Jerusalem was conquered by Babylon in 605 B.C., all while reflecting on God and his glory. But then the 24th day of the month comes, and it was time to reflect inward. The people had gathered together in a display of mourning. They were fasting. They were wearing sackcloth and had put earth on their heads. This is akin to us wearing uh, black today. When, when we go to a funeral, when we go to a memorial, and what we do uh, and why we do that is we're demonstrating externally the sorrow, the grief, the sadness that we're feeling and experiencing internally. And so in, in addition to collectively entering into a posture of mourning altogether, we're told in verse 2 that God's people separated themselves from all foreigners. I want to take a second to unpack this. If you're not well-read in the Old Testament, this might sound strange to you. Maybe even dangerously nationalistic or exclusive of them as a community. But what they're doing is responding to what God has called them to do repeatedly from the very beginning of his relationship with them. God had chosen the people of Israel, which he explains in Exodus 7, because they were essentially the, the runt of the litter. They were the smallest of all the nations, yet he chose them to be his people. And it would be through this group of people that God would fulfill his promises uh, that he was making 
uh, a people for himself that would then go and reach all the nations. And that's what we get to experience here and today. As we look around this room, there are people from different nations, tribes, and tongues. And God gives his commandments to Israel. He doesn't do this in a way where he communicates to them, hey, this is how you become my people. But God gives his commandments. He says, this is how you ought to live because you are my people. And wrapped in those commandments, you see verses like Leviticus 20, uh, 26, where God says, you shall be holy to me, for I am the Lord, I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples that you should be mine. So part of the reason for them needing to separate themselves from all corners in verse 2 is because they're actually living and celebrating with their neighbors, which is a really good thing. They're doing what they're supposed to be doing. In chapter 8, after they had this huge church service, they were commissioned, they were sent out, much like we do here at the end of a church service. They were told to go celebrate, to send portions of food to those who didn't have anything, to invite people to feast with them. And this wasn't just for the people of Israel, but also for their foreign and non-Jewish neighbors as well. But then, as the feasting and the celebration died down, the tone shifted and it was time to reflect inward. For them as a people, to face the reality of their waywardness. This is not something that people outside of God's covenant community would have understood. And so it was important for them to come together as a community of God's people. What does that mean for us today? Well, there is a unique and real bond that we all share here today if we profess Christ as our Savior and follow Him. We as a church body are the fulfillment of what God's covenant community during Nehemiah's time was, was pointing forward to. Paul explains this really well in Galatians chapter 3. In verses 28 through 29, Paul says this. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Now, in these verses, Paul is not throwing away ethnicity. He's not throwing away gender. But what he is saying is that as it relates to being within God's covenant community, those are not the dividing lines for who is in and who is out. Paul's saying, in Christ, we are one. Not in a race or in a gender or in a social or economic status that we all hold together. And then if you look at those verses in 29, he kind of pulls it all back together. He says, if we are Christ's, meaning if we put our faith in Christ and are Christians, then we are Abraham's offspring. This is huge. We're grafted into this original community of God's people and adopted into the family. We are then heirs. We get to benefit from the same promises and blessings and the inheritance that God gives his people in the Old Testament. It's a beautiful way for us to be able to read the Old Testament as it communicates our family history as well. Because through Christ, we are all God's very own people. Now, this is absolutely astounding. It would have been incredibly frustrating for some of the xenophobic and racist Jews at the time of Paul's writing who thought that right relationship with God, salvation from sin, God's promises for redemption and reconciliation were only for the ethnic Jews. And so this was a scandalous development in God's story. It's also why it's so important that each of you see 
yourselves, not as individuals in relationship with God, but if you are a Christian, you are part of the people of God. And as a member within God's holy family, you get to benefit from the beautiful promises of God to his people because we are all God's people together. Now, there's another important aspect to this. We don't just benefit from the blessings of being God's people, but being part of any family means that we share the good and the bad. Look at verse 2. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of of their fathers. Hmm. A family name can carry great prestige or great shame. Maybe sometimes a little bit of both. For the majority of people, that fate is largely outside of our hands because it's determined before we're even born. As Israel heard God's word being read, it was a recounting of their ancient family history. And to put it quite frankly, the family history of Israel is not pretty. It is incredibly ugly, as you heard it read aloud earlier. And we'll get to the grisly details in just a moment. But what you need to see is that God's people stood as one, both in celebration, which they've been doing for 23 days, but also in their mourning as well. They took ownership together of the glories that awaited them and the promises of God, but also in the sin which marred their past as a people. Now, this helps us understand two things. It helps us understand how to approach our own personal sin, and it also helps us approach the sins of our brothers and our sisters. So first, on how to approach our own sin. We are not as unique as our first grade teachers would have led us to believe. Okay? That doesn't mean that we're not special or that we're not loved by God, or that we're not valuable. But what it means is that the apple does not fall far from the tree. A lot of us look at our parents and we cringe. And we say, we're nothing like our parents. We're more enlightened today. We're more sensitive. We're more aware. But we are, more, we are still just as susceptible to the same temptations and the same sins as our forefathers and our foremothers. Now, there might be different forms, and the context looks different, but lust is lust, and greed is greed, and anger is anger, lying is lying, selfishness is selfishness, pride is pride, jealousy is jealousy. It doesn't matter what time period you live in, or what type of education or technology you have access to. Now, this should be encouraging. Many people struggle to confess their sin because Satan would want us to think that we are the only one who struggles with what we struggle. He wants us to think that our sin is unrelatable to other people, that the hideousness of our brokenness is somehow cosmically cosmically unique. But the reality is that we are all in the same boat. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, that no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. As God's word displays his glory and reveals our brokenness, we need to remember this truth as this happens in our hearts. Israel knew this because they saw in themselves as as a community, but also as individuals, they saw the same brokenness and sin that plagued their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents all the way back 
to the first founding fathers and founding mothers of their nation. It's the same story, but a different generation over and over again, which we're going to read about in a minute. And so they were able to acknowledge through confession of their sin, as they also confessed the sins of their forefathers, that they needed God just as much as their forefathers did before them. That's how these verses help us understand how to approach our own sin, that, that we're not special or unique in our sin. But it also helps us understand how we approach other people in our community and their sins. These Israelites, they mourned their sin, which played out like a broken record on repeat, just like their parents. And it also revealed to them that they were no better than their parents or anyone else in their community for that matter. See, sin and brokenness is divisive. They can be. And I don't just mean sin that's committed toward you, which naturally causes hostility between whoever's sinning against you and you. But when we see sin in our brothers and our sisters, it can cause divides even when that sin isn't directly aimed at us. But God's people do not point a finger and say, hey, you sinner, you need to repent. What we see biblically is that God's people, they do call out the sin, but they weep and they lament with one another. And then they join in in that repentance together. This is actually a recurring theme in the book of Nehemiah. When Nehemiah first hears about the trouble in Jerusalem, what does he do? This is all the way back in chapter 1, verse 4. You turn back a few chapters. This is what happens. As soon as I heard these words, this is Nehemiah, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Now, what in the world does Nehemiah mean by we have sinned against you? He is thousands of miles away from Jerusalem. He has never set foot within the city his entire life. He hasn't even met the majority, if not all of the people that he's praying for and confessing alongside. Then look at verse 6 again. It says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel. You can't confess other people's sin. It doesn't work like that. You can't go into a courtroom and say, she confesses to murder. That's not how it works. Not unless you have a personal level of ownership and association with that sin. Because you can take the stand and say, I confess, we did it. That's what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah takes the sin of his brothers and his sisters upon himself. He implicates himself in it. He mourns and confesses alongside his covenant community. And this is not an isolated event in chapter 1. Later on in chapter 5, it's brought to Nehemiah's attention that people are taking advantage of one another out of greed. Uh, they're extorting one another. They're enslaving one another for financial gain. And what does he do? He calls everybody out. He admonishes them. He tells them to knock it off. But then if you remember, he leads his community in generosity. And he shows them how to repent 
of their greed. He makes personal sacrifices. He exercises radical generosity. These are things that he doesn't have to do, but he does them because he cared for his brothers and sisters. He took their sin very seriously and seriously enough to walk with them out of their sin. Brothers and sisters, when we see sin in one another, how are we coming alongside one another and helping in their repentance process? If we can, if they let us in. Yes, calling out sin is, is, is the first step, absolutely. But do we draw lines that divide or do we enter in and bear with one another patiently out of love and compassion as if our brothers or our sister's sin was our very own sin? This is what God's people are called to do. It's another reason why I want to challenge you to not view your relationship with God in just a vacuum. This is not just about you. We talked a lot about this last semester when we went through 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 12, verse 14, Paul says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. And then you jump down to verse 26, it says, If one member suffers, all suffer together. How mercy house our church would be transformed if instead of saying, you, your sin, we actually saw it as our sin as a community. So I pray that God would help us do this because this requires the miraculous intervention of his spirit in our hearts. Because as sin abounds, God's grace abounds even further. And so the prayer is that our patience and our compassion for one another would also abound alongside that. Now, I know that this is a hard word. But most of us are here and we're like, look, I've got enough of a burden just carrying my own sin, and now we need to carry the sins of other people. But confession should be seen as freeing, not as a burdensome activity. If we understand grace correctly and understand that God doesn't make us grovel, but when we confess our sin and we repent, he sprints at us and, 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 and he's eager to forgive and to restore and to heal, then confession should actually be something that we delight to do any chance we have an opportunity to do so. Confession is not a punishment, Mercy House. The purpose of confession is not for you to feel bad but it is an unloading of burden before the Lord. And ultimately, we're called to do this for one another, to bear with one another's burdens, to patiently and compassionately walk in confession with one another, because ultimately Jesus does this for us. Jesus is the, the true and better Nehemiah, who not only takes on the sins of his people and spends time mourning and praying for them, but who takes on all our sin, and he carries them onto the cross where he died in order to pay for them. It wasn't Jesus' sin, yet he took it upon himself as if it were his own, and it killed him. There's no greater love than this, and this is the love that we're called to display toward one another. So quick recap, Israel gathers together as, as a response to God's word and a posture of grief and sadness. They collectively confess their sin, the sins of their community, the sins and the brokenness that, that they've inherited from their forefathers. And then look at verse 3. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God and for a quarter of their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bani, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shanani, 
and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord, their God. After their time of confession, they have what appears to be a six-hour long church service. They read the Bible for three hours, and then they spend another three hours confessing and worshiping God. I think this communicates some very simple truths. The time in God's word is never time wasted. We're seeing again that, that the appropriate response to God's word, when God's word is heard in our ears, when it's understood in our minds, when it migrates down into our hearts, is worship and confession. And not just like a minute of it, but a prolonged experience of worship and confession. Now, this isn't just in the context of the church. And it's not just the context of a Christian conference that you go to where maybe you would see something like this on display, but it also should be applied to our own personal time with God and God's Word. A question for each of us this morning is, is this how I respond to God's Word in my own life when I sit down and read His Word? And if not, maybe before we even get to the worship and confession portion, where last week, um, Jimmy also talked about obedience as another way to respond to God's word. Before it even gets to those things, we might just not be hearing it to begin with. And this is why it's necessary for you to come to church to hear God's word being preached. And why it's necessary to read God's word on your own at home, which is what we always encourage you to do, to have a quiet time and spend time with the Lord in his word. Maybe you're hearing it. Maybe you're not understanding it. And so this is why we want to encourage you to come to a midweek on Wednesday nights where we dive into the text deeper. We ask questions that aren't able to be talked about on a Sunday morning. We dialogue about that text. We also encourage you to get a commentary off of Amazon or get a study Bible with some notes in the bottom or meet regularly with others to read the Bible together so you can glean from one another's wisdom and experience to help you understand God's word better. Maybe we're hearing it, maybe we're understanding it, but it might just not be settling down into our hearts. Well, remember what we said at the very beginning. This is not merely an academic exercise. It is a supernatural experience where the Holy Spirit is transforming our hearts by the power of his word. If, if we're hearing and reading scripture, if we're working to study and understand it, but we're not like affected by it, our hearts aren't changed by it, then what we ought to do is pray. Pray. Plead with the Lord, invite the Spirit in, and pray that God would not let you leave your quiet time the same as when you first sat down. And I think this is a prayer that the Lord would just delight in answering for you. Once the word is heard, once it's understood, once it reaches the heart, then and only then can we respond in true, honest worship and honest confession and obedience in God. Let's continue. Verse 5. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethiah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord. You alone. You have made the heavens the heavens of heavens. With all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. So the Levites wrap up their six-hour service by calling everyone to stand together and to pray with them. And from here to verse 37, what we see is a beautiful model for prayer. And notice how they start their prayer. Not 
not like we're often tempted to start our prayers, which is immediately like, God, I need your help with this, or God, can you please help me, and can you give me this? Like, we go right to what we're asking for, but way, the way that they start their prayer is an adoration and an acknowledgement of who God is. They say, God, you alone are God. We're not going anywhere else in our distress and in our shame. Uh, you are the creator and the sustainer of everything. So I want to encourage you, if, if you don't already, to start your prayers to God, beginning with who he is, and answering out loud, why do you worship him? Why do you follow him? Why is he worth aligning your life to him? And let that frame your conversation of prayer with the Lord. In the next section, verses 7 through 15, we see the Levites beginning to recount their history as the people of God. And starting with when God chooses Abraham as the one who would be the starting point for everything that God would do, from here until verse 37 is a very public retelling of the story of God's people from the very beginning all the way until the present time. Now this prayer and this retelling of their story it is important for us as we see how important our stories are. So yesterday we just had Meet Mercy House. It's a membership class. People who are interested in becoming members of Mercy House get to come, and it's awesome. And part of that time is the class getting to hear about our story as a church, but then the more fun part, in my opinion, is hearing the stories of those who actually come to the class. I've been a part of a lot of classes. I've never been to one where I wasn't just so encouraged to hear the testimonies of how people met the Lord, how they came to faith, and their transformation into maturing followers of Christ. The reality is, is your story if you are a Christian, is one of the most powerful tools of both encouragement and evangelism that you have at your disposal. You might be tempted to say, well, my story isn't that crazy. I wasn't like a drug addict. I don't have this like rock star conversion. But if you're a Christian today, your testimony of how God has shown up in your life, how he has rescued you from the domain of darkness and brought you into the kingdom of light. Your story of how you were once absolutely dead in your sin, God made alive together with him with the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. Like if that's happened to you, that is powerful. And that is your testimony. And it ought to be recounted and retold regularly, not just uh, for other people, but for yourself. So that you remember what God has done in your own life. But it will bring encouragement to others around you, including communicating the gospel to those who don't know Jesus. And so this is my challenge for you this week. Go grab coffee with someone here. Go grab a slice of pizza and take some time to intentionally ask, hey, what's your story of coming to meet Jesus? I think that you would be surprised at how many friends you might have and how long you've been friends with them. And you're like, wow, I've never actually shared my story with you. Like, we just showed up at church. I assume you're a Christian and then like, you're doing this thing alongside me. But take time to share that story. Again, to encourage yourself, to encourage your brothers and your sisters. And also, there's a non-believer there to share the gospel with them. In verses 9 through 15, we, we see how Israel's story begins with Abraham. Then the nation multiplies, but experiences uh, some harsh slavery in Egypt. And God hears the cries of his people, and he miraculously saves them. He, he divides the Red Sea to give his people safe passage through them. Uh, he deals with their pursuers. He leads them supernaturally through the desert with a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud during the day. God feeds them. He sustains them. He gives them his holy word. 
which shows that he's not just like an orchestrator of his people, but he begins developing a relationship with his people as he shows them what it looks for them to live like his people. I mean, all of this is incredible, and it's amazing. And then look at how God's people respond to all of this. This is actually the first break in verse 16, where the prayer shifts the focus off of God and onto his people. Look at verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandment. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you perform among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery of Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. God rescued and took care of his people. He led them. He fed them, but they continued to disrespect him, disobey him. They didn't listen to him. The verbiage that's being used here is they had stiff necks. This is the same verbiage that's used earlier in chapter 3 to describe those who wouldn't bend their necks down to stoop to serve the Lord and all the rebuilding that's happening in the wall. So even as Israel is experiencing this resurgence of faith and returning back to the Lord, there's still people who have that stiff neck of their great, 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 great grandparents. But nevertheless, God continued to take care of his people. He wouldn't abandon them. You see this in verse 17, the second portion. Uh, part of that. It says, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. God continued to be faithful despite their disobedience, like a parent who continues to be a parent even though their children don't listen. A disobedience of children doesn't disqualify parents. Negligence does disqualify parents, but thankfully God does not neglect his children. You see in verse 21 that God continued to sustain them. They, they lacked nothing, is what it says. He even made sure that they were well-dressed and they had been sneakers on their feet. Look at the second verse of 21. Did you catch that? Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell, meaning they had nice shoes. Which as a side note, remember what God did when Adam and Eve, the grandparents of these grandparents, when they disobeyed God in the garden, what did he do? He made them clothes to wear. Our clothes, our shoes, things that we often take for granted, these are blessings from God. When is the last time we took a minute and said, God, thank you for my clothes. Thank you for clothing me. The blessings from God don't stop at just shirts and shoes. Look at verse 22. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. Jump down to verse 25. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Man, God blessed them with kingdoms. I don't know what gifts you've received in your lifetime, but no one here has received a kingdom. Like, never mind the $2 billion lottery that just popped up. God gives his people what is the equivalent of, like, Vermont. And he's like, here you go. 
All the houses in Vermont, all the cows, all the ice cream, it's just a gift to you, my people. And then look at the end of verse 25 there. It says, so they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. I want to pause and just talk about this verse here. To be fat today, like even that word alone has such a negative connotation. It's been so distorted by media and our culture, but here is a biblical basis for arguing that fatness isn't inherently evil or bad. And absolutely, being overweight can be a product of a sinful relationship with food. But here, it is a biblical example of, of, of fatness as an indication of God's blessing. It's used absolutely positively here. God had provided for Israel in such abundance that they had the luxury of having extra weight on their body. Like, imagine today if we saw having extra weight as the same thing as having extra cash in the bank. You're like, wow, that's really blessed me. But we don't. We tell each other, hey, you look skinny. I said, that's like the best and kindest compliment that we can give each other. And I'm not sure that this is a hill that I'm going to die on for the rest of my life. And I'm not saying that we should go around and say, hey, you look fat today, and expect that to be an encouragement to somebody. I don't think we're ready for that. But at least in our own hearts, as we look at ourselves in the mirror, may our first impulse not be, oh, I need to change. I need, I gotta take care of this. And may it be, God, thank you for blessing me with food and providing for me in abundance. I understand that this is a sensitive and complex topic. I'm sincerely not trying to make light of something that I know can also be connected with physical and mental health. But I do hope and I honestly do pray that in my lifetime, I would be able to, for the sake of my two little girls, see that us as a community of God's people can challenge some of these broken cultural views on weight and body size. In all this blessing, kingdoms, vineyards, olive orchards, clothes, shoes, food in abundance, you'd expect that maybe now Israel will finally respond in thankfulness and obedience as they realize, wow, God really is for us. He's really proved himself and demonstrated himself as worthy of our obedience to him. Look at 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn back to you that they committed, uh, and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the, their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. But when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, they shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are gracious 
you are a gracious and merciful God. Are you starting to see the cyclical nature of their sin that kind of plays like a broken record? Their disobedience, their unwillingness to listen and to follow God, their stiff necks that just won't bend down and serve the Lord. It, it's the same sin over and over again through the generations. These people knew what was good and right, and they actively and repeatedly chose to do what was wrong. If you are making disciples, whether those disciples are your own children or they are younger people in the faith, then I think you can relate to the situation. And here's a question I want to pose to you. Does the disobedience of God's people mean that God is a bad father? Does the constant inclination to return to sin and to not listen mean that God doesn't know how to lead his people? The answer is no. God is the perfect parent. He is the perfect leader, which means that it is possible for you as a parent to be doing everything right in the holiest possible way and your children to still be disobedient. It is possible for you as a discipler or a mentor to do everything in the godliest way possible and to give the best holy counsel to somebody and for your disciples and mentees to just disregard you and to keep running headlong into sin. You're not doing something wrong. It's not about you. It's possible for me to preach the gospel, to be faithful to the good news of Jesus Christ week in and week out, and for you to hear it, for you to understand it, and for it to not actually penetrate down into your hearts. The reality for all of us is that the transformative work of God is in his timing and by his power. This is not an algorithm. We don't just do things and then they happen. The only thing that we can do is exactly what God is doing here, to be faithful, to keep loving to keep shepherding, to keep caring for, keep carrying the burdens of communicating grace and truth, and to take time praying and pleading that the Lord would do something with all that energy and that effort. We do this for people under our care because it is what our Heavenly Father does for those under His care, which includes you and me. Even as Israel's sin is cyclical, re repeated over and over again, so is God's grace and his mercy. That's what you should be seeing in this passage. Romans 5, 20 says where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And so the prayer begins in mourning, as we see earlier on, as they acknowledge and they confess their sin, but it ends in hope as they trust that God would do what he's always done through all the generations, through all of the sinfulness and the disobedience and the blatant disregard for God that he would continue to keep his covenant and his steadfast love for his people. That's where their hope was. And so, brothers and sisters, I don't know what sin you struggle with. I don't. But based on this passage, I know that it's not unique, and I know that you're not alone in it. I know that your story is a reminder of the first time that you confessed your sin, and then the immediate grace and joy that you had as you experienced God's forgiveness and his salvation. 
We see in chapter 8 that God's response to our confession is not a desire for us to suffer guilt like we, like we might want people to suffer if we're sinned against because the guilt of our sin has already been suffered for. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it, saying, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink of it in remembrance of me. We cannot mistake our sinful hearts toward people who have sinned against us as being the same heart that our Heavenly Father has toward us in our sin toward Him. Where we might want someone who has hurt us to suffer, at least maybe marginally, want, hey, I want you to feel bad for what you've done. God does not desire that at all. That's why He runs to us when we repent. He embraces us and He reminds us that we've already been restored to Him, that the price has already been paid. And He tells us, Child, your sins are forgiven. Now, we're going to work through this mess. There's a practical consequence to your sin, but we're going to do that together. Before we get to that, let's rejoice together. If you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you to experience this joy today by confessing your sin to God and asking Him to forgive you and trusting in His steadfast love that you've seen in this passage withstand the test of generations of time and for you to be able to begin your story with him today. So I want to give us time this morning, all of us, whether it's for the first time or the thousandth time, to confess your sins to your father, to call them out by name, which is what Israel does. Not just saying, God, forgive me of my sin, but how have you been sinful? Be honest and transparent before the Lord. I'm going to be in the back to listen, to pray for you, to mourn with you, just like Israel did with one another. They'll carry that burden to the cross if you want to take advantage of that. And so I want to encourage you to utilize this time to do that. Let's do that now. But before we do, let's pray. Father in heaven, you are holy and you are righteous and there is none like you. God, you created the heavens and the earth and you sustain everything that is in it. God, in you is abundant grace and forgiveness. And God, we confess our sin to you this morning. God, we confess them, again, not just in general, but Lord, we, we name them out in our hearts before you, just like our forefathers did. And God, we confess that we too, like our forefathers, can have stiff necks who do not bend in obedience to you. We confess our pride. God, we often think that we know what's best. We often question your goodness even though you've shown us nothing but extravagant provision and care for us. God, we confess that there is only forgiveness in you and that we need you, Father. Every hour we need you. God, we're so thankful that you have made a way in the life and the death of your Son, Jesus, to forgive us of our sin and to pardon us of our guilt and our shame. God, thank you that there is no shame, that there is no punishment because our shame and our punishment has already been carried and, and paid for by Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to walk in your ways. Help us not to be stiff-necked of people. Help us to humble ourselves before you. And, Lord, we pray that as we hear your word, as we study and understand your word, God, would you please do the supernatural work of transforming our hearts. 
and letting us rest in the truths that are revealed to us in your holy word. God, we pray all of this in the patient and compassionate name of Jesus. Amen.